If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 4? In just a moment, we will be looking at this. Kind of to set our understanding of what Paul is going to teach us and tell us today. Imagine with me that you are a part of this great sports team that is underperforming in a given half of the game. Your coach brings you into the locker room and among other things, the coach says, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. The way you are playing, this is not how we play. We are something different than this. In other words, our our actions and our play are not in line with our character and our skills and our values and our abilities. They should be different than what was seen in the first half of play. And I think there's something similar going on in Ephesians where Paul is saying to us, become who you are. It's like the first three chapters unpack, this is who you are. And these last several chapters unpack, so become this, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And last week we looked at like, what does that mean to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What does that mean for us as a church family, an entire church family? And this week I want to shift gears a little bit and I want us to look and hear from the passage what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as individuals. So I've asked uh, Paula Richwine to come up and share uh, Ephesians four seventeen through 32 with us. So please uh, walk along as she reads. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Thank you, Paul. So we begin walking through this particular passage. I think this calls us to take inventory. First of all, take inventory of our direction. So the word that Paul used there was, let's not walk in this way, but let's walk in a different way. Where we could be walking, he said, we should no longer be walking. As Paul read 17 to 19, it's not, it's not a pretty description of what the walk apart from Christ looks like. 
matter of fact, I'd like to go over those verses again, maybe with a different translation. So I'd like you, for you to hear them from the New Living Translation. It says, live no longer as the Gentiles do. And by Gentiles, it's not, not so much an ethnic distinction as it is those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. It's really a distinction of belief. He says, don't live as those that are, are without belief in Jesus Christ. Don't do that because they're hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they've closed their minds and they've hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult description to hear. And, and let's be really clear. We, we should not read that and assume it's okay for Christians to be judgmental of everybody. Because that's not where this is going. And if we go there, we're going to the wrong place. This isn't a, a license to be arrogant as if, well, well we are somehow uh, just so much superior. That's not where this goes. It's certainly not saying that every, every non-Christian you ever meet is the worst person ever. That's not saying that. It's not saying that, that those who are non-Christians act like this all the time, 100% of the time. It's not saying that, but what I don't want to do is kind of blunt what it is saying because it is drawing some very clear lines. Like when I read Ephesians 4, especially the back half here, I don't read of any grace scale. So it seems like it draws the lines pretty definitively. And that certainly makes sense. It's recognizing this important fact that all roads lead somewhere. You knew that, right? All roads lead somewhere. And the fact is, when we take a step in one direction, we're taking a step away from another direction. And when we take a step away from, from God, we're taking a step towards something. And that is the description directions, a direction leads to a particular destination. And what is presented here, some very different directions. It makes us stop and, and really think, so it talks about a walk. So, so where are we walking to or toward? What are we walking away from? So the one who is walking away from God, the one who once again, Paul's saying, this is what you used to be. It, there are several descriptors there. So in, in verse 17, one of, the, one of the words to describe is they're futile in their minds. There's a futility about, about even their thinking. So a futility kind of gives us, it puts in mind, they're always running into dead ends with their lives. It's kind of the, the epitome of Ecclesiastes, meaningless. It's all emptiness. It's all vanity. So there's a certain way of living when you're walking away from God who is true meaning in life. When you're walking away from him, when you're not walking toward him, when you're walking away from him, it it makes perfect sense that then you're pursuing things that, that aren't meaningful ultimately. It goes on in verse 17 to say they're, or 18, they're darkened in their understanding. I think Paul in some ways is writing this of his, his own autobiography here. So he was even religious, but still in the dark when it came to his understanding. So he was pursuing religion and all that it could, all that it could do for him, but he was opposing Christ. And, and he says, in that state, I, I was darkened in my understanding. I, I, I was darkened. I, was, I didn't have a sense of, of the light. Well that, well, that makes perfect sense. If we're walking away from God and God is light, then it makes sense that we're walking toward deeper darkness. 
He says, apart from Christ, we're alienated from the life of God. There's a real separation. And again, the further we walk away from God, or regardless how moral we are, how nice we are, the further we walk away from needing God, depending on God, the more we are walking toward this state of alienation. If Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we're walking away from Jesus, then we're walking away from the life. He says at that point, there's an, an ignorance that, that begins to envelop. Uh, the mind begins to close. There's deliberate rejection after exposure to the truth. And Paul has seen this. I mean, Paul walked in Athens and remembered he sees the city filled with worshipers. They're just not worshiping the one true God. And remember, he sees this one statue, and its statue is to the unknown God. And it's kind of the, the placeholder God, the God that we'll just fill in. Whatever I like to think of God as this, I like to think of God as this. We'll just worship the unknown God, and we're heading straight into ignorance when we're walking away from the truth and the knowledge of who Jesus is. So much of this deals with our thinking. In Jesus, Colossians 2 says are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge when we walk away from him. It does impact our thinking. The rationalizations for doing what's wrong come a lot easier. We, we, we feel this. And, and so while we have a pretty steady message from the world around us, like do what feels good, it seems like wonderful advice until the scary part when you when you do that and it ends up destroying your life. We begin to close our mind toward anything of God. We begin to trust our hearts and be true to ourselves. which it seems like I get those messages preached to me regularly from all, all the surrounding world. But then God says something very different. He says, don't lean on your own understanding. So if we're walking away from that, what happens? And, and then the, the description, not just in our, our mind and in our thinking, but also in our conscience, it says that, that we become a hard of heart, we become callous, we lack sensitivity, we have no sense of shame, even our conscience becomes impacted, we're less prone to think, yeah, that's, that's not the right thing to do. Sometimes you see people do horrendously wicked things and you go, like, how could they do that? I mean, how could, how could their conscience let them do such, such a thing like that? And, and yet we realize that our conscience, what God has given us as a gift, sometimes can be seared over time, can be, can be desensitized. So we, we, we no longer feel, feel the impulse like, that's not okay. That's not right. That's not right. And we begin to kind of shut that up and we don't want to hear from that. And eventually, eventually we find ourselves given over to sensuality, as this passage says, abandoning ourselves to restrain, uh, unrestrained practices and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's, it's almost as Paul saying, yeah, if God's out of the equation, then really you couldn't get enough of things and taken to its logical conclusion, you couldn't get enough of things that made you unclean before God. Direction leads toward a destination. We think of the ultimate destination that Scripture teaches about what is, what is hell at its core but severe alienation from God, from the life of God. This rattles us because it doesn't matter how, again, how moral we are, how, how, how nice we think we are or how smart we think we are. If we're walking away from God, we're walking into danger and this should cause us to search our hearts. 
It, could, it should cause us to recognize some things. So some of you have a pretty dramatic story of, of who you were before you met Jesus Christ and who you are now. And so you read this and you go, yep, I was certainly on a, a meaningless road. And I certainly was darkened in my understanding. I did not understand things. And, and I certainly had a hard heart. And I look back at what I did and the choices I made. And I, I, I realized I was, I was just walking headlong into things that, that God hates. And what was I doing? But I would imagine there's also many in the room that you have, you've been a Christian for as long as, long as you really remember. You've, you've sang songs about Jesus. You, you know the truth about Jesus. You've learned Bible verses, maybe even these Bible verses. And you say, they're really, Curtis, wasn't necessarily, I can't think back to a time like maybe when I was four before Jesus, when I was, you know, futile in my thinking and, and darkened in my understanding. And I was greedily pursuing all sorts of wicked activity. I mean, that may, that may not be your autobiography spiritually speaking. If you identify with me in that, what I've come to recognize is this isn't only a description of life before you meet Jesus, but it's a life, it's a description of a life apart from Jesus. This is the life that I would have lived had there, hadn't, had there not been some, some godly parents that I had and some children's workers who shared the message of Jesus Christ, who spared me from an immense amount of heartache. This is where I'd be. This is where you would be if there hadn't been an intervention of God's grace. And do we know this? This is either before this is a description of us or apart from Jesus Christ, this is a description of who we are. It causes us to search our hearts and causes us to soften our hearts because we we look out at a world and and we're not necessarily angry shaking our fists at at the world because we're personally angry. We actually feel some sadness because there are those that need the light of Jesus Christ and they need meaning and and they need some sensitivity and they're pursuing things that are going to wreck their lives. And, and we don't look at that and, and we're not callous to that. We, we care about that. Our heart becomes softened when we see even sin celebrated. We go, Lord, they don't even know what they're doing. They don't know what they're pursuing. It certainly causes our hearts to be stirred. Like, what are we going to do about it? I mean, part of the reason why we want to share the love of Jesus Christ with as many kids and families as we did this past week it's just recognizing this responsibility that we have of giving good news. What, what, what comes next? Because we have been delivered from darkness and because we've been shown the true light. And what comes next for us? What does that mean in our neighborhoods? What does that mean about the people, mean for the people that we care about? I mean, what, how does this play out? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that the world that doesn't know Christ, they don't just need like minor improvement. It's not enough, like Ogletown can't just have a, a self-help seminar for three hours on a Saturday and get everybody okay. This, is, this goes far deeper than that. Will we care? Will we persevere in our love? Showing God's kindness to, the, to those around us. Again, going back to the basics of the message, the passage here, and that is Paul saying, this is no longer you. So don't live like it. Don't live like it. This is no longer you. So why is it no longer us? If we read 17 through 19 and we go, that's not us. That is not us. Why? We, 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 find, a real, we find a real difference in verses 20 to 24, a, a difference. And life in Jesus means that change happens. Such a contrast in verse 20. I mean, there's this awful description of life apart from Christ in verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. What a change. 
something powerful has happened. You heard about Christ. Someone shared good news to you. And you're no longer left in the dark. You learned Christ. I love the terminology because it's not saying you learned a bunch of theology. You learned a textbook. You learned the periodic table. You learned a person. You learned Christ. You learned Jesus Christ. You've come to know him. You've come to have a personal relationship with him that far exceeds any sort of uh, a religion or some, some ideal or idea. It's a personal relationship. You've learned Christ. Something different has happened to you. This is no longer who you are because Christ has come into you. This is a radical transformation, a definitive break with who you were or who you would be without Christ. And sometimes that definitive break comes overnight. That's, that's very much the way it was with my parents. There was a definitive break with, with who they were before they met Christ. And sometimes, maybe more often than not, it's this, it's this period of time. Maybe it's a, it's a semester, or maybe it's a year, or maybe it's a couple of years, or, or some sort of season, a month or two, where you just begin to know things shifted. I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but things were different. I've never been the same after this period of time. The real change. It even begins to be unpacked more in verse 22. And I love the analogy Paul says is, it's like you've taken off a garment called your old self. It's like you've taken off your jacket called the old self. You're not wearing that any longer. You've shed all of what's just been described. That's not you anymore. And you've been renewed in the spirit of your mind. Something's happened in your thinking and in your heart that's changed you. And then, again, the analogy, you put on something new. So you've taken something off. You've shed all of what's just been described. You've been renewed in your, in your mind. And, and you're putting on things that are new. There's a new self. This is like creation terminology. We're back in Genesis 1 and 2 where God created. And now he's recreating things. He's recreating us into the image of our creator. We're, we're more like Jesus because we're growing in this. We're more like we were always meant to be because we're being renewed. We're putting things on. Our thinking and our values and our decision-making and our priorities and our deepest friendships and our partnerships have changed. We have to remind ourselves of this because there's such a pull from a couple different directions. One pull is the pull of the past that says, actually what you are is what you always have been. And I know what you've always had ha- been. You've been this, this, and this. And we begin to talk to ourselves and we begin to, to wallow in what we once were and we begin to think of poor decisions that we made or a, a wicked lifestyle that we, we'd love to be able to just hit the delete key and it'd all be gone. But somehow it always seems to be popping up and we can't seem to erase it. And it begins to pull and say, well, wait a minute, is this really who you are? Have you really put on anything new? The pull of a, a dysfunctional family or a dysfunctional life in the past, some sort of a hurt or some sort of, of addiction or some sort of background that we hear this and we go, I don't know if this is who I am. And Paul's saying, yes, it is. It is. This is who you are now. There's another poll and that's the world, this current age, which, which just pushes us like make your flesh happy in the next five minutes and who cares about the rest? You just do what makes you happy right now. Forget about the rest. So we, I mean, we've got these pull, the pull of the past, the pull of this current age. And Paul is saying, you've got to remember something. This is not who you are. So don't walk as if 
you are what you were. You're not that. So if we really are different, if Christ really has made a difference, if we're being renewed, made new again, if, we, if that's really happening, what does the difference look like? So if we really sense we, Christians ought to be different, and, and I think most in the room professing Jesus Christ, we go, absolutely, we ought to be different. So what, what does that difference actually look like? What will that look like? Will it be that you arrive to a different spiritual class of people? Because you are different. Is it this impeccable amount of wisdom that you just, you can give the right counsel in every situation because of this difference that has been made? Every single time, you're going to give the wisest, wisest advice. Is there some sort of outer glow around people who are different? That you just kind of sense that there's this like outer ring like, oh, that person's different. I wonder what's happened to them. Is it, is, it, is it noticeable? Is there some rise in power? Because you're different, God just gives you more stuff. And God gives you more power because you're different. He gives you more, more stuff and you can, your bank account gets, you just grows. And every, is that the difference that happens? Is the difference that you're uh, able to do miraculous things? Is, it, is the difference that you can do these great exploits for God? Is the difference that you can unlock spiritual mysteries that have boggled the minds of people for ages? Is that the difference? And actually, as you continue, you to read the passage, that isn't the difference. What's surprising is the difference shows up in decisions. And those decisions are really, really ordinary. When Jesus changes you, it shows up in a thousand ordinary ways. The difference shows up. And we're not, we're not we're not passive in this. So do you have the Bible in front of you? You, you see in verse 25 and 26 and, and going through the rest of the chapter. Like, this is instruction. In light, of, in light of putting on something new, taking off something old, being renewed in your mind, there are things that won't be present because you've taken them off. And, the, and there's things that will be present because you put them on. And there's a bigger picture going on because you've been renewed in your mind. All these things are, are commands and, and they're given. They're commands for a new covenant. There's no overnight perfection here, but the Bible does teach a long obedience in the same direction. Look at verse 25. So this is what it looks like. No, no glow about you. No miraculous superpowers. You know what it looks like when you put off things and you put on things? It looks like this. You, you put away falsehood. And you speak the truth. There are things that aren't present. That's any falsehood or deceit. And there are things that are present. You're speaking the truth. We're more attuned. Because we're no longer what we were. We're more attuned to those major and minor exaggerations. that Make us look good. Make other people look not so good. We catch ourselves even as we begin to talk in such a way where we know that person is deceived by what we say. And we make sure they're not. It feels very ordinary. But what comes out of our mouths is the truth. We speak the truth because, here's the bigger picture, we're members of each other. How dare we harm each other with lies? How dare we create a community where we're all lying to each other? I mean, what kind of family is that? Does that indicate we are the, we are the church of the living God? Of course not. So, so we put those things off. We put other things on. 
we're, we're, we're willing to even take the tough consequences of telling the truth because that matters to us more than living a lie. Notice verse 26. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. The difference that Jesus makes impacts our, our handling of anger. So no longer, we've, we've taken off sinful anger. We've put on a right way of handling anger. Dealing with our anger in the right way, not letting it fester. Often, often I mean, this is life, okay? Often we cannot control the first impulse of anger. We cannot control that. That, that comes up as just part of our wiring as humans. But this is saying there, there should be some restraint when it comes to our anger. There's something about time that makes anger unusually harmful when we dwell on this, dwell on this, dwell on this. If I'm dwelling on something days, weeks, months, years later, something's gone wrong in my heart and it can only harm me and others. There's a bigger, bigger picture here in that as we're, as we're living a life filled with anger, we're actually inviting Satan into our lives and saying, here, you have this privileged seat in my life. It says, no, no, give no opportunity, give no advantage to the devil. Don't invite him into your life like that. And we could classify Part of my temptation on reading like be, anger, be angry and don't sin is that, oh, there's a category for righteous anger. And I, I want to classify about 95% of my anger as righteous anger. See, this is, I'm just angry at the, the right kind of things. I don't think there's that big of a window here. I, I don't rule it out completely. I think there's certainly anger at sin has, has helped a lot of good things happen. But, but... There's, this is an area where Satan can so easily counterfeit righteous anger. And we can be so deluded. And if you're sitting on it a week, a month, a year later, it ain't righteous. It's not righteous at that point. If you're letting your anger go with no restraint, it's not righteous. If your family is seeing a short fuse, and that's who you are, that, that's what characterizes you. If there are homes at Ogletown where people tremble in fear because of abuse, because of someone, then that's not righteous. That, that, we're called to take that off and put on something new. If our social media pages give any indication, do they give any indication that we've, we've shed some things? We're, we're not that anymore. And we put on some things. We, we know how to handle anger differently than those who, who have never had a definitive encounter with Jesus Christ. Has God dealt with our temper? The difference impacts, like the way we, we think about property and work. So verse 28 says, yeah, what's not present anymore is we're, we're not stealing because we're lazy and because we want other people's stuff. But we're actually working hard, not so that we can just have a, have a, a fat lifestyle that is just wonderful, but so that we can share with others hard work leading to generosity. Look at verse 29 and 30. Because we're different, it impacts our speech. So th- this is a strong, strong verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And the word corrupting would just mean like that which is spoiled, that which is putrid, that which is rotten. And that, that was the connotation of that word in that time. I often think of uh, one of my favorite Charlie Brown characters, Pigpen. I just wonder if like, there was a, a picture of what comes out of our mouth and would it be like just Pigpen, just a cloud of, of ugh, 
just always around our mouths because we're so filled with innuendos. We're so filled with vulgar talk. We're so adept at just taking people down sharply. And everybody around us knows. Let no corrupt communication, no corrupt speech come out of our mouth. This is difficult in a world where there is tons of corrupt, tons of corrupt communication. Tons of corrupt, corrupting speech. All you have to do is just look at the, the iTunes like top 20 chart. And then b- beside half of them is an E, an E, an E, an E. And it's, what is that for? It's for explicit. And this is saying that there, there are thoughts, there are words, there are concepts that are going to take you to the gutter. And so I don't read Paul here saying, well, let me give you 10 bad words never to say. And you stay away from those 10 bad, magical words. Stay away from those and everything's all right. I actually see the standard much higher because he says that this is the bigger picture. You have an opportunity to to give grace to those who hear. This is the bigger picture. You You can give grace to those who are here. You can be God's instrument of grace. And by doing so, you're not, you're not grieving the Holy Spirit. I, I, I wonder, like, when in the week does the Holy Spirit cringe at the way I said this, at the way I communicated that? The difference greatly changes our disposition toward others. What, what isn't present in verse 31 is this bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, just this high drama that always someone's got to be, you always have a problem with something or slander or malice. All of those things, all the things described in verse 31, those are things that create a wedge between us and someone else and a deep divide between us. But then notice what verse 32, actually, so we put off all that that just drives a deep wedge between us and someone else. And verse 32 says, what's present, what we put on is this kindness, this this tenderheartedness, forgiving, those are things which actually build a bridge to someone else. And there's a bigger picture because think about what Christ has done for you. Think about the wedge that your sin created and think about how Christ built that bridge toward you. He did all the construction in the bridge building. I I don't even think the thought is finished with verse 32. I think it actually spills into Ephesians 5. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. It's like these are the bookends, right? So we're told at the beginning, this is the direction you don't want to go. Don't walk like, like you used to. But now we get a different direction. Walk toward love. Walk toward loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Walk toward loving your neighbor as yourself. Walk toward loving the world as God loved the world and gave his only son. Walk in that direction. Walk toward that destination. There's no need, no need today to pull out a checklist. I don't think that's the intent. But it, but it is worthwhile that we look at ourselves and we remind ourselves, I'm different because I'm in Christ. I'm different. And if you haven't met Jesus Christ in, in a way that has changed your life, I would love to have that conversation with you. Love to talk with you more about that. Love to share with you what God has done in our lives. But, but if God has made that difference, r- remind yourself, I, I'm not that. Praise be to God. We look outside and we find ourselves merciful to others. We see people alienated from God and we say, Lord, what do you want me to do about that? What do you want me to do about that? A person that's alienated from the life of God. And as we look inside, 
we begin to ask new questions like, well, what should I be pursuing? How can I hunger and thirst after righteousness this week? How can I do that more? How can I become who I am in a growing way this week? I ask you to bow your heads and just take time to think through those things. Take time to think through the difference that God's made, who we are in Christ now. Take time to evaluate what needs to change in light of becoming who I I really am. Lord, thank you for your grace. Apart from you, our lives are right in the headed right toward a dead end. And thank you for what you're doing in our community. I I realize there's many of these areas where we fall short. There's often this week where I've been less than kind, and speech has been less than that which ministers grace to those who hear it. And you see those, you know those. Lord, I do thank you for the changes that you are making that I do see. I thank you for, for that in my own life. I thank you for that in, in our friends' lives. Continue to work out your good pleasure, your goodwill in our lives. Because we want our lives to bring you great, great glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.